Hello, welcome to episode number 124 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Zeynep Çelik, Distinguished Professor of Architecture at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and the author most recently of About Antiquities, Politics of Archaeology in the Ottoman Empire, which was published by the University of Texas Press. In our conversation, we talk about the origins of archaeology in the Ottoman Empire, the response to the European pursuit and in many cases theft of antiquities and questions of heritage heritage in contemporary Turkey. But before we get started, first let me remind you that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal which gets you a whopping 35% of the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member you also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send to members with every new episode which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper into the subject. To become a member just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more then you'll certainly be more than welcome but so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Zeynep Çelik. Modern archaeological practice that developed in Europe was motivated by the impulse to rediscover the ancient past and place contemporary European culture within its lineage. Obviously that brought renewed interest in antiquities within the territory of the Ottoman Empire in the 18th and 19th centuries, leading to many artefacts being removed from Ottoman lands both with and without official permission. So I started by asking Zeynep Çelik about how the Ottoman authorities initially responded to the increased interest in antiquities within Ottoman territories. Uh, it seems to me that it is not totally appropriate to connect the Ottoman responses to antiquities in reference to Europeans only. Ottoman interest in uh, antiquities really goes all the way back. And I think we seem to forget that, for example, Mehmet II had created sort of a museum of antiquities in the gardens of Topkapu Palace, where the old Acropolis was. So the interest really goes back. And it is also significant that the art history discourse recorded this, and I'm talking about the early art historians, uh, Ottoman art historians from the beginning of the 20th century. They linked the sources of Ottoman art and architecture to the previous civilizations and in a very sophisticated way talked about processes of synthesis. 
So the Ottoman interest in antiquities does not start in the 19th century. Something happens in the late 18th and 19th centuries, of course. This is the birth of European archaeology and first collections, collecting antiquities, and then archaeology. And the Ottoman reaction to that has been uh, tremendous. And they were especially reacting to the looting, but I'm also thinking how important it is to think about the attachment of ordinary citizens to antiquities. This is something much more difficult to record, but recently historians have called our attention to this. So the reaction to Western interest in antiquities happened on multiple levels. And it is important to think of them uh, not only from uh, top down, but also from bottom up. Very difficult to record. We have to do a lot more work on this. But when thinking about the uh, Ottoman authorities, their attitude shifted really from a kind of very relaxed permissiveness, as far as I understand it, in the 18th and early 19th centuries, to an increasing guardedness and protectiveness of uh, pre-modern and classical pre-Islamic culture from really the mid-19th century onwards. Could you just talk about what was behind that awakening? You know, was it entirely a response to European encroachment, European interest in antiquities on Ottoman territory, or was it motivated also in part by other impulses as you perhaps referring to there yeah i am referring to other impulses and of course the scale of interest augmented so tremendously they realized that something major was going on here that the treasures of the land were being taken away so in uh, parallel to the augmentation of the European interest the Ottomans started tightening their uh, rules and regulations to control European activities first European then American activities on their land I don't see a paradox here. I just see that there was a parallel development. This is how I see this story. So there was this 180 degree shift, basically, from giving permission to Europeans to remove antiquities from Ottoman territories to be much more protective, requiring this very strict official permission. But uh, even after that permission was given, a lot of artifacts were even then still stolen, essentially, by European archaeologists and adventurers. I just wonder, you know, the Ottoman claim to antiquities expanded and complicated in many ways the imperial image and linked the Ottoman Empire to heritage that was being sort of rediscovered and and put into a new narrative by European powers. And in a way, like when the Ottoman Empire adopted archaeology as a kind of sign of progress and modernization, and archaeology became this powerful cultural symbol of modernity and indeed even imperial health, there's a kind of paradox there because a lot of this ancient heritage was ancient Greek and Roman, and the Ottoman authorities at this point presumably did not sort of self-consciously imagine this as being part of their foundational culture, unlike the Europeans who saw it as this sort of gloriously underpinning their idea of civilization. I think we have to go back to the roots of European claims as well. It is constructed. The roots of European civilization are constructed on the Greco-Roman uh, heritage. And I think the Ottomans followed up, yes, they also constructed their past. 
So I don't see this as a paradox at all, but their eyes were opened up and they realized, I believe, that these civilizations belong to them. In fact, they had recycled them before into their own uh, civilization. So within the changing culture of the 19th century, they became actors playing similar roles. I don't see a duality there. I don't see so much of a, of a paradox as though they were doing something which was very foreign to their own uh, history. But presumably there was a kind of irony at the centre of this, because at the same time, you know, shortly before this new policy was implemented, you know, the Greeks had broken off as a nation, you know, Greece had become independent. And indeed, part of that nation building project was sort of looking back to the ancient past as a cultural wellspring. And that was in many ways in contrast and opposition to the Ottoman Empire that the Greek nation had just broken off from. So there is a sense there that, you know, that those two things were put in opposition to each other. I think this is very important, and actually the Greek laws were very influential on Ottoman laws. But again, it's a matter of cultural construction. When you read the post-Greek independence efforts to create a local culture, you realize that most of it was done by Europeans, outsiders. The introduction of antiquities as the basis of contemporary Greek culture was foreign to them in the 1830s, 40s, 50s. Of course, it took root and became extremely important, but in the beginning, it was, again, a construction. These are cultural constructions. So I think, again, trying to establish a conflict is really not very useful. What is useful is to understand the uh, transfer of ideas back and forth of ideas from one place to the other. Now, one of the key figures whose name has reached us to this day as one of the pioneers, really, of um, the Ottoman development at an official level of uh, archaeology and using it is Osman Hamdi. And you've written about him and you've uh, studied what role he played. Could you just talk about that? What was his role and why was Osman Hamdi a significant figure in the mid to late 19th century? Yes, I have worked on Osman Hamdi and uh, several times I also expressed my desire to talk about the Ottoman visual culture in the 19th century without mentioning his name, which is not possible because he's in every aspect of the Ottoman visual culture, a very important man, very influential, a great doer. His politics always eluded me because he was able to function under very difficult situations. And obviously the key figure in archaeology as well as other things. But I'm beginning to think that it is time to liberate him from his solo situation positioning in 19th century Ottoman visual and cultural history. And we need to do a lot of a lot more work on this. We have other people. In archaeology, we have Makridi Bey, we have Bedri Bey, and we know that they played key roles, but we have not studied them. Uh, we have not reached a clear understanding of, for example, who wrote the laws Obviously, Osman Hamdi did not write the laws all by himself. What mechanisms were used to formulate these very complicated laws? They also changed 
them. Uh, how were the changes? How were the changes made? Who decided to make the changes? All of these are going to allow us to uh, complement the situation of Osman Hamdi. It's even deeper than this. In terms of the archaeological culture, a lot of people were given responsibilities, and these went all the way down to school principals, teachers who were all given the responsibility to watch over the archaeological sites because there were not enough uh, officers to control the theft. So I am now thinking of how important it is to understand the attitude toward antiquities on a much broader level than simply focusing on Osman Hamdi. So much ink has been spent on him. It is really time to involve in some uh, new research. I know this is not easy research. Ottoman archives are not going to give us too much information on this. We'll have to find other ways of pulling out this information. Schools were used as museums. Government buildings were used as museums. And when we think of the scale of the Ottoman Empire, how extensive it is, we're talking about a government palace in Beirut at the same time being a museum, or we're talking about a high school in Baghdad at the same time being a museum. It's a very complicated and very intriguing scene, which has not been investigated yet. So yes, Osman Hamdi is very important, but what can I say any more than what I already have on Osman Hamdi? Well, the first chapter of your most recent book looks in depth at the Imperial Archaeological Museum in Istanbul. And obviously Osman Hamdi was very much the guiding figure behind the foundation of that museum. Could you just talk about the origins of it, you know, the thinking behind that museum? What was the what was behind it and how was it open? How did it appear on the scene? Well, it's very much uh, part of the modernization programs, and it is in dialogue with great museums elsewhere. So the idea of an ordered, classified story of the, of the land is behind the creation of this museum. It is linked to the archaeological research done in the empire. And it is very much, of course, inspired from European museums. But I think its most intriguing connection is to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Let me explain this a little bit. These two museums are outsiders to the European establishment. They're latecomers, and they're both looking at what's happening in, um, in, in Europe, what has already happened and what's continuing to be happening in Europe. The two museums, um, they have really similar developments, even in the physical growth of their build buildings, uh, but there are also differences. The Metropolitan is not a state museum. It has a trust. It's funded by private um, wealth. It was very wealthy. So the Metropolitan Museum had a lot of money, but it had no antiquities. The museum in Istanbul had no money, some funds from the state, and a state that was bankrupt. Uh, but it had control. It sat over all the uh, valuable antiquities of the Middle East. So there is this difference 
between the two of them. How they uh, dealt with their identities is quite interesting, too. The Metropolitan had a lot of public programs, schools for schools, transportation facilities, classrooms in the museum, a, a major effort toward education. Whereas the museum in Istanbul was run like a gentleman's club, a gentleman's club not even for the Ottomans, but an international gentleman's club. Uh, Osman Hamdi and the people around him, I should say, were not interested about educating the public or even drawing the public to the museum. And that strikes to me as a very, very important beginning point for our museum, which never got to be that popular, by the way. Its visibility in the city is quite interesting as well. The archaeological museum is not a visible museum. Compare it to any other museum in any of the major European cities or the metropolitan, which contribute to the image of the city one way or other. Ours is hidden in that garden. There's something attractive about it, and it has been described as being shaded and so forth. However, its presence in the city is not obvious. So the uh, publicness of the museum is quite different than the museums in Europe and in the States. So the museum's origin as a gentleman's club reflected in its history, and to this day it is the least visited museum of Istanbul. On the other hand, it became very uh, visible among European and American uh, archaeologists and uh, art historians. Many articles were published in European journals of the time about the materials, the artifacts in the, the Archaeology Museum in Istanbul. And of course, a lot of attention was paid to the so-called Alexander's uh, sarcophagus, but not only that. So it entered the scholarly discourse in a universal manner, but in terms of a public institution, it remained rather marginal in Istanbul. And as a project, it's quite interesting when we think about it because it was initiated under um, Abdul Hamid II and he is characterised, especially these days, as being this sultan who was very keen to assert the Islamic character of the empire. And it's interesting when we think about that and the fact that this museum, which was very much styling itself in conversation with developments in similar European museums, it's funny that this institution developed underneath a sultan such as Abdul Hamid II, or perhaps it's not, because of course Abdul Hamid II was also a great sort of modernising sultan in many ways as well, despite all the ideological baggage. Absolutely. Abdul Hamid II is a very complicated figure, and I think trying to label him an Islamicist is not correct. It, it doesn't work, because he is very much a follower of the Tanzimat reforms in all areas. Think of education, think of the numbers of uh, new schools throughout the empire built under Abdul Hamid II. So I don't see a conflict here. But I see a, a problem, a conflict in the fact that this museum was not keen on collecting and displaying Islamic art, artifacts in the beginning. I sound like an enemy of Osman Hamdi, and trust me, I'm not. 
But it is only after his death that his brother started paying more attention to the Islamic artifacts. So it's, it is a conflict maybe, but again, it goes back to what Europeans were interested in and who Osman Hamdi's preferred audience was. What about a bit later on with the role of ancient heritage in the early Republican era? It's obviously a very big subject, but how did the Tamalist nation building project try to fit the ancient heritage of Anatolia into its own national narrative? You know, this is, again, another one of really, really good themes to focus on. As far as I see it, there is no big rupture there, especially if we're talking about the early, early Republican period. It is a, it, there are continuities, and line was not drawn with the early Republican period. And I think perhaps looking at the laws and international treaties give us a good understanding of this continuity. First, the Sèvres and Lausanne treaties. There is so much in these treaties on antiquities, and according to the Sèvres, all would go to Europe. But in the Lausanne, in signing the Lausanne Treaty, the Kemalists really, really fought over the antiquities, and they were uh, basing themselves um, on the Ottoman laws, the 1906 law. It is a topic that we need to pay a little bit more attention to because we also have a tendency to stereotype Sèvres and Lausanne in single lines. And there are complicated issues. Antiquity is a big one in them and the struggle on the antiquities. So I should also say that laws, the 1906 law, is very important. It formed the basis of the Republican laws. Hence, the continuities are great. Yes, of course, there was a, so much has been said about it, the Hittite uh, turning to the Anatolian civilizations, apart from the Greco-Roman ones, became very popular for a time. This, this is a big, a big topic and a lot has been written about it. However, the early Republican policies are not any different than uh, Ottoman policies about antiquities. Uh, jumping forward even further, the uh, issue of heritage has come right back onto the agenda recently, especially with the conversion of the Hagia Sophia, of course, and also more recently the Kora Church in Istanbul, both of those being converted into mosques from museums. Were you surprised by these decisions? What do you make of this direction of travel? I think it is a great idea to keep these two churches, churches, uh, historic monuments, uh, world monuments, as museums. So I'm not happy with that decision. And in terms of Cora, I don't even see how they're going to be able to do that because it is so covered uh, with iconography. How is that going to be? I, I haven't seen any projects. Okay, Hagia Sophia, they have the, the drapes and whatever and the rugs on the floor, but how are they going to do transformation into a mosque in Cora? I, I don't see it. So at the outset, I must say I'm very much against this idea. It's, it was great to have them as museums, and they're quite unique that way too, I mean, universally unique. However, the decision is a political one. It is so political that even the opposition did not utter a word of oh, no to that. 
Having said that, what we learned from this decision is that key monuments which have been associated with political power are still associated with political power. Hagia Sophia is a wonderful historic example. Justinian did not build the great church because of his deep belief in religion. It was to celebrate himself. And it was a political act and a lot of cruelty was involved in its construction. Uh, There's a lot of blood in those um, uh, stones and marble and bricks because it was also built in a very short time under a very oppressive rule. Now, Mehmet II's decision is also a political decision. And he couldn't have done otherwise. He comes, he conquers this city. He knows about the legendary temple there. Of course, he was going to uh, transfer this into a mosque and think about the numbers of Muslims at that time in the city, very few. So it, it is political. It's not religious as I see it. The 1935 decision, it's another political decision. And it is also made from above. If there were a referendum at the time, would people vote to have Hagia Sophia transformed into a museum? Probably, most likely not. But was it a good decision? I personally think it was a good decision. It also was a demonstration of the Republic's secular uh, values and to map it in the world as a symbol. It was very successful that way. And hence, today's decision, well, another political decision, another one that is from above. Uh, The building will endure. I'm not sure Cora can endure the transformation, but Hagia Sophia, I think, will endure the transformation. And let's see what happens three years, five years from now. Now, the epilogue of your book talks about this fraught question of the possession of antiquities and the disagreement between their source countries and many Western museums over the returning of antiquities to their place of origin. I remember a few years ago, then uh, the culture minister, Ertuğrul Günay, launched this campaign. It was probably the first campaign that I've seen in Turkey along these lines to bring back ancient material from Turkey, uh, from Europe. That kind of died down a bit afterwards, but just recently I've seen that there are plans to apply for the return of the Pergamon altar to Bergama from Berlin to Izmir. Do you see these kind of developments increasing in the future? I mean, it would seem to kind of fit in with the spirit of the age of increasing kind of abrasiveness between Turkey and uh, Western countries. What do you make of that, the prospects of that developing in the, in the future? It's not just Turkey. It's a lot of many other countries who um, engage in this battle, return of the antiquities. It started quite a while ago in Turkey, not recently. And every now and then it emerges as a, uh, in some flame, in, in a new flame. But I have to tell you, uh, the courts of New York, this is what I know, are dealing with so many cases on the theft of antiquities, whether it is the Cambodian government or it is the Greek government or the Italian government or the Turkish government that is involved. There are many of them. And uh, it is an ongoing international struggle of sorts. They will return an artifact here, an artifact there. But returning the Pergamon altar is, to me, as important possible as the Elgin marbles going back to Greece 
However, keeping the uh, debate going, at least from where I see it, is useful because it makes us understand history better. What I would expect, I would hope that the Europe Western Museums would um, agree to do would be to acknowledge where the uh, artifacts came from and under what circumstances. That way, they would offer a revisionist window to their own histories and their educational value would increase tremendously. I'm thinking of uh, last time I was in Berlin, Pergamon Museum. You know, there are kids who are being brought uh, by their teachers and there's no explanation on what that huge structure is doing there. I think this is doing disservice to everybody and the recontextualization of antique artifacts in the European and American museums could um, serve a great purpose. But will they be ever returned? No, not not with the exception of a few cases. Yes, there are very uh, sexy cases when the head the head of a statue is brought together with the body and put in the museum in Antalya. But it's it's minor given the numbers of antiquities in the uh, museums all over the world, the Western world. I also want to ask you about the topic of contemporary excavations going on in Turkey. It's not something that obviously I know much about, but I've seen some reports about increasingly restrictive permit requirements for foreign archaeologists and researchers looking to work in Turkey. Uh, I don't know if you could comment on that. Is that true from what you know? What's the situation now on that front? It's not something that I know of, but I've been hearing about it and I cannot comment on it because I don't know what is involved. The conditions have changed a lot. When you think about 1905, let's say, when you had European archaeologists and Ottoman inspectors, it's not the same anymore. It's almost half and half with uh, Turkish archaeologists. But I really am not, I mean, I'm not, I hear it. I do not have any firsthand um, knowledge of what's going on and what the thinking behind it is. That was Zeynep Çelik. Many thanks to her for joining for this episode number 124. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so please send any recommendations feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter that's put together by journalists Razie Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, arriving in your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just search for Turkey Recap on Twitter or elsewhere to find out how to subscribe. 
And last but not least here, I also want to flag up a new novel that's just been published. It's written by another friend of the show, Nectaria Anastasiadou, and it's called A Recipe for Daphne. It's published by Hupo Books and it had its official launch here in Istanbul a couple of weeks ago. The novel is set in the contemporary Rum or Greek Orthodox community in Istanbul with a colourful cast of characters who have all been shaped in various ways by developments in Turkey over the past few decades. It's a very charming and heartwarming read so do check it out. A Recipe for Daphne published by Hupo Books which is an imprint of the American University in Cairo Press. But all that's left for me to say now until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks is thank you very much for listening. Bitches,